Okay, it's not that I'm so set in my ways that I only know how to preach from a pulpit. It's that many, many years ago when my parents died, they left me a small inheritance and it went to purchase this pulpit. So I have a special attraction to it. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Oh good, he's there. So Luke is going to be one of my object lessons uh, in today's sermon. <laughs> and so, uh, I mean, I thought of even making him sit right in front of the pulpit, but that would be too embarrassing. So you can kind of glance over uh, now and then and maybe see him beaming. Ancestry.com is a big deal for the last 10 or 20 years. In my family, uh, I paid for everybody to spit in the cup and send it off and see where we all came from and whether we could have guessed that. And Carolyn's idea of a vacation is to drive back to the Middle West and the East Coast and even part of Canada to see where all of her ancestors are buried. Now this morning, I wanted to imagine the impossible. What if the entire congregation spit in a cup and then we poured them all together and then we sent it off to somebody who specializes in this kind of thing. Now, wait a minute, this is what I think, it's not too hard to imagine, we might see. So we have a big meeting, like on Pentecost or something, and the results of the cup come back. People are looking. Do I see Bach? J.S. Bach? And people are saying, wait, is that Luther, Martin Luther? And Paul, St. Paul? Well, that would be true. Bach is the greatest church musician of all time, and he's ours. He was the cantor at the Lutheran Church in Leipzig for the last 25 years of his life. Luther is obviously ours, it's the namesake. And then if we went back to Wittenberg, that Lutheran stalwart town in Saxony, and said to Luther, okay, who would you nominate for the best theologian of all time? There is no question that Luther would immediately say, St. Paul. So this is a distinguished legacy. Bach, the greatest musician, Luther, the greatest reformer, and Paul, the greatest theologian. They're all ours. They're all sort of Lutheran. <laughs> now, the question is, would you have gotten that if I hadn't told you? If we were all gathered around the results from the joint spit in a cup, would we have said, wait a minute, I think I see resemblances. I think I see 
what possibly are the ancestors of this congregation and of this denomination and of this worldwide movement? So then here's the question. Do you hope to live up to them? When you get your results back from Ancestry.com, did you say, my, I didn't know I had such distinguished ancestors, and I'm really going to now try to own them and uh, see if I can live up to them. And given a reading, which we'll unpack in a moment, I wonder if we might also say, wait a minute, but it, it, it's getting a little clearer. So this is the whole congregation. This is everybody's spit. Do I see tongues of fire above every head? Possibly. Speaking of legacies, I can't resist an occasional good Lutheran story, such as Katie Luther brewed beer at their home in Wittenberg, which is why all Lutheran pastors are required to be drinkers. <laughs> so I read um, a couple weeks ago that in the early 20th century, Midwestern Lutheran pastors were advising their members against intermarriage between Swedes and Norwegians. <laughs> okay, we're a little. You may have wondered this morning in these Sundays between Easter and Pentecost why there's no Old Testament lesson. That's because long ago, the people who set up the revised common lectionary thought it would be an interesting thing to turn the book of Acts into the church's Old Testament lessons for the Sundays between Easter and Pentecost. After Pentecost, we revert to the Old Testament lessons. And the idea is that the book of Acts has become a new kind of grounding, just as early Christianity looked back to the Old Testament as the precursor of Jesus the Messiah. Now the book of Acts tells our story at its beginning. And uh, when I was, pick when I was uh, familiarizing myself with today's lessons, Ben told me, Pastor Ben told me that he intended to preach on a series on the book of Acts for all these Sundays up to Pentecost, and would I mind doing the same? So, I am. And the point is to ground ourselves in these stories of early Christianity in the first century, so maybe 40 AD, uh, although Luke maybe wrote a little later than that. When we were in seminary, we all used commentaries, whatever they were, on Luke, and they always had a picture from the Middle Ages of Luke sitting at his desk, writing the Gospel of Luke, 
and the Book of Acts. And some fanciful Renaissance painters imagine Luther as a kind of artist painting a picture of early Christianity. And so that's what he was doing too. So we may this morning then say thank you to Luke who wrote the gospel, who wrote the book of Acts. And of course the beginning of Luke is the story of Pentecost. In this case, it's not Paul who's the hero, but Peter. So throughout uh, Jerusalem, where people are gathered together, the Holy Spirit comes upon them, and there's tongues of fire on their head, and people begin speaking in tongues, not a Lutheran proclivity, and uh, they think, wow, these are all foreign languages. And this is the birth, we commonly say, this is the birth of Christianity. But Pentecost and Lutherans, okay, we're good at the liturgy. So I'm guessing there will be very many men who wear red ties on Pentecost. And of course the stoles will be red and women will be encouraged to wear a red blouse or a red skirt or red shoes. So we do get that right. But is Pentecost and Lutheranism what you most think go together? So here's a story. A long time ago, I went back to St. Louis to Concordia Seminary for our five-year reunion. So all of us who had been buddies for all those years together gathered together and told stories about how we were doing in our early ministries. The most surprising story was from a classmate named Jerome Scholl, who had grown up in Birmingham, Alabama, but was now a pastor in Colorado. And he told us how he had gotten interested in his third or fourth year of ministry in the Pentecostal movement and tongues of fire and uh, healing and speaking in tongues. So he went to visit one of his parishioners who was in the hospital. And when he finished praying, he startled the parishioner by saying, be healed. The parishioner was very surprised. It caused quite a stir. Word got to the elders of the congregation. They called the pastor in. What were you thinking, they said. You can't heal Lutherans. <laughs> and so he left the Lutheran ministry and became a Pentecostal pastor. <laughs> and I haven't heard from him since. But the most exciting thing that happened when we were all aghast at this story, we said, and did you speak in tongues too? Yeah. Doesn't everybody? Then we said, could you speak a little bit in tongues for us? <laughs> and so he began rattling it off like it was a miracle. And all of us Missouri Synod boys said, could we try too? <laughs> we couldn't get a word out of our mouth. Not a word. 
Lutherans don't speak in tongues. So is this an, something missing from our ancestry that we don't speak in tongues, that we don't heal? Here we are in California, you might not have known this, in 1908, there was an Azusa Street revival in Los Angeles, and it was the birth of worldwide Pentecostalism. There had been a growth of uh, spirit-led Christianity, and it somehow hit LA. Well, Frank Lloyd Wright once said, everything loose in the United, the United States is on a vast tilt, and everything uh, 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 that's not stuck down ends up in Los Angeles. So this spiritual movement ended up in Los Angeles. Uh, it spread across the United States. In about 50 years, it had taken over Latin America. And to this day, there are more Pentecostals in Latin America than Catholics, even though it's a Catholic continent and not only that, but Pentecostalism is the fastest growing Christian movement in the world. Everywhere, like fire. So we could be missing out. Uh, on Ancestry.com Sunday, which I'm making this, we could say it's a little too bad that we don't have any Pentecostalism in us. And Luther himself inoculated us. When people in the 16th century got a new idea, because the Reformation was afoot, but it wasn't Luther's idea. Luther said, they act like they swallowed the Holy Ghost, feathers and all. Did you get that, feathers and all? Yeah. The dove came down. So um, there we are. Now, to speak to my hero of this morning, what about this idea of grounding? So grounding in the Holy Ghost, grounding in the book of Acts. So when Luke was having his review after his early time here by the church council, they praised him to the hilt. He was just glowing, and everybody was saying, boy, did we hit the spot with this new cantor here. And then when they were through praising him, they said, so do you have anything to ask of us? And he said, you know, I wasn't raised Lutheran. And so there's a lot about Lutheranism that doesn't just come naturally to me. So maybe I'd like to kind of immerse myself a little further. And someone on the council, that would have been Cheryl Hines, said, why don't, you, why don't we set you up with Don Hines? And he could slowly grow you into the Lutheran traditions. So we begin every couple weeks having a drink in my backyard. We move from wine to vodka. Um, and uh, eventually I wrote up a whole series of statements 
that I thought summarized what the Lutheran tradition was about. And of course, since he's a cantor, the star of the tradition was Martin, was uh, Bach. And I had long suspected that Luke might have some backdoor connection to Lutheranism, because on the first Sunday he was here, people said, this is Luke Nikolai. Nikolai? Was I the only one who knew that the second church in Leipzig, besides Thomas Kirche, that Bach served, was called Nikolai Kirche? <laughs> I've been to that church. When Bach wrote a splendid new thing, he would sometimes do half of it that morning at Thomas Kirche and the other half that evening at Nikolai Kirche. It's just a short walk across Leipzig. So I thought, Luke comes trailing clouds of glory, and he already knows a bit about that. So the theme of our meetings together, we still now again have them, was don't ever let Bach down. <laughs> you are the heir of the greatest church musician in history, and no one would dispute that. Even if you said the greatest musician of all time, his only two rivals would be Beethoven and Mozart. So, and he's ours. The greatest is ours. He's one of us. We don't think of Mozart and Beethoven as being particularly religious, but Bach, Bach had commentaries on Luther in which he scribbled all of his own notes. You can see them in a library today. So my sense was, Luke, this is your heritage and you have to grow it here at Faith Luther. Not that it wasn't already here and hold on to everything possible. It's not just music. It's no accident that we have a rich liturgy. Only Anglicans and Catholics do as well. Why? Because Luther's principle was hold on to everything from historic Christianity that you can. If it doesn't contradict the gospel, hold on to it. So while other Protestants were raging through Northern Europe with axes and sledgehammers, tearing down organs, Lutherans were building them. When Calvinists were whitewashing over religious art because they thought that uh, icons were idolatrous, Lutherans were holding on to them and commissioning more of them. Albrecht Dürer, so forth, Hans Holbein. So we are the good fortunate heirs of a tradition that said, God bless all the arts. And I said to Luke every time we met, Luke, you are the carrier of the arts here in this congregation. And it's your job to live up to Bach, your great predecessor. And I confess, 
Luther, uh, uh, Luke's first months here, he only played the Steinway piano. And I thought, wait a minute, boy, you know where you've come from? <laughs> the more his heritage sank in, the more he turned from that Steinway to that big mother on the wall. And his his um, preludes and fugues and his uh, postludes have become more and more complex. For all I know, Luther, uh, Luke has always been a great organist. But in case we didn't know that, or in case we had to let him feel his oats, it's now unmistakably clear. And we have in Luke our prize boy cantor here, man cantor here, uh, we have someone who is modeling for all of us what he's doing with Bach, we could and should be doing with Luther and with Paul. Now we might pause to think about Paul. So the conversion on the road to Damascus is the most famous conversion in Christian history. Even university students who are utterly secular, if they see something in an English literature course alluding to the road to Damascus, they all know it's the great conversion story in the Western tradition. Paul breathing fire, Luke tells us, with letters from Jerusalem to seize any Christians you can get a hold of and send them back to Jerusalem for sentencing, possibly to death. That Paul is going on the road to Damascus and all of a sudden he is struck by lightning and falls off his horse and becomes dumb and God says, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Who is it, Lord, Paul says. Then Paul is sent into the city to wait three days and the Holy Ghost comes upon a person, Ananias, in the city. Go to Paul. Ananias says, are you kidding? He kills Christians. It'll be okay. Go to Paul and in three days he'll get his sight back and he'll get his voice back and he will become the greatest Christian you ever saw. A couple years ago when I was writing a book in which Paul is one of the heroes, it occurred to me to take a Wall Street metaphor, <clears throat> an IPO, an initial public offering. So this is, you probably know, uh, if you are a new investor who think you've got the world by the tail, and uh, you've got all of the money that you have uh, ready to pour into this new stock. But you need many, many, many more investors. You get ready for an initial public offering. The first time the stock will go public, unlike Twitter, which is going private now. And when this stock goes public, it will have a little sheet with it that says, this is why 
this is going to be the greatest thing since sliced bread. This is going to be the thing. And we sometimes forget uh, first century Judaism was an ethnocentric religion. Jews accepted converts, but they didn't go looking for them. And so Paul's commission is to take, to use the Wall Street metaphor, to take it public, to take the Christian message grounded in the Old Testament, fulfilled and blooming in the Messiah, to take it public and let God be preached, the Christian faith be preached throughout the world. And today there are 2.1 billion of us. So we could ask there, reviewing our spit-in-the-cup results, is going public with a radical Christian message and hooking as many people as we possibly can what you first think of when you think of Lutherans? Maybe not. When you think of dramatical conversions, like every university student learns on the road to Damascus, is that what you most think of with Lutherans? When I was growing up as a true blue Missouri Synod boy, my mother told me that I was going to become a minister. She said this in eighth grade to get me ready. So in ninth grade, I went off to a Lutheran high school in Milwaukee, a boarding school, and uh, its sole purpose was to train Lutheran ministers. Every single boy, needless to say there were no girls, every single boy at that Lutheran high school in Milwaukee was planning to become a minister. And then there were four years of college, and every single one of those was planning to be a minister. And then there were four years of seminary. So that's 12 straight years of Lutheran schooling. In all that time, I never met a kid who wasn't a cradle Lutheran. It wasn't typical that you turned to your classmate and said, I just found the Lord last week, and that's what I'm doing here. Lutherans don't find the Lord last week. We got him with baptism, generally speaking. But couldn't that be a weakness, too? It could be a strength that Lutheranism is a long-lasting thing, and if you get baptized in it, you're going to last. Okay, if it's got staying power, that's good. But shouldn't we occasionally have somebody walking in the door and say, I just got saved last week, and I'm checking this church out to see if it might be the right one for me? We wouldn't know what to do. I suppose we'd say we don't do altar calls. If you don't already know it, this isn't the place. We don't do altar calls. But that could be a weakness, that we don't do altar calls, that we don't um, tell campus ministers to look for other Lutherans. We don't tell campus ministers normally to go out and make some Christians. That wouldn't be the way a Lutheran campus minister thinks of herself these days. So the question is, is this a legacy also? Conversion 
flames on our head, initial public offering, should all these be the kinds of things that we do? Okay, now this final point could annoy some of you, so I'm going to say something nice right after I say something less so nice, okay? So you kind of stay with me and like don't walk out or anything. So if you were going, so we've done Bach and we've done Paul. So if we, we're talking about Luther, here's something you'd have to say in case you didn't already know it. Lutheranism in Wittenberg has the air of a university around it, partly because there is a university, a brand new one founded in 1502. Uh, and Luther had a, a faculty appointment there. And so everything that Luther did as a reformer and a theologian, he also did as a teacher. You could smell it when you went to Wittenberg that this was a teaching reformation. Teaching reformation. So would you say that, well, if there's one thing you think about Lutherans, is they have Bible studies like crazy. Those Lutherans know their Bibles. I mean, every Sunday after church, without fail, they go to their face class. 40, 50 people flooding the parish hall. Wait a minute, that wouldn't be here, would it? And uh, the confirmation class, they're famous for their confirm the rigorous confirmation classes. They last two years to get through to them. Or, uh, are Lutherans experimenting with, with what Catholics call rite of initiation for adults? So Catholicism starts in September and finishes at Easter for a new member. Do we have the stomach to go that long to train and educate adults in the faith? Does anybody who walk in the door say, those people are just teaching their hearts out? It almost feels like you're at a university there. When, you're, when you hang around uh, a Lutheran church? Maybe not. Okay, so that was the tisk, tisk. And you got the snotty comment that the face class in the parish hall is not flourishing every Sunday. And there's never been 50 people there for a long time. So what's that about? Well, for some reason that I don't understand, here's where you deserve praise. We may not be the best at Bible study, but nobody does social ministry better than we do. It's almost like Wesley and the Salvation Army is our heritage. Every imaginable outreach to the hungry and the unhoused and the sick Every imaginable kind of outreach Faith Lutheran is doing. So are other people, but I doubt anybody is doing it as extensively and elaborately as we do. So there, somehow we crossed, we spit in a cup and got John Wesley. Okay, good for us. And we spit in a cup and got the Salvation Army. And we're our own Salvation Army. So good for us. Uh, it's okay to reach across um, Christian history and choose different people as our great heroes. I don't really know how we ended up with Wesley, but good for us. The question is now, is it time to recover Luther 
and his teaching ministry, maybe. Some commentators who thought I'd be preaching on John, or that everybody would be preaching on John on this Sunday, said, why don't you preach a sermon titled, Jesus Made a Callback? Okay, cute. So Jesus appears, third appearance, and he says to the disciples, how's the fishing? Didn't catch a thing. Do it again. And then they caught 153. Do it again. So this is what I'm closing with. Jesus offers you the possibility of a callback. If you didn't get Bach right, okay, actually we are getting Bach right. If you didn't get Paul right, if you don't always get Luther right, here's a callback. Do it over. Amen.